Thank you very much for those kind words. I recall Stephen Davy when he was a student at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary in the years past. He was an excellent piano tuner and also a very gifted student. And uh, when I was with him and looked upon him at that time, I never realized that God would take and use him as he did Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. It is a joy for me to be here again at Colonial Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina, and to speak to you from the New Testament, from the book of Revelation, the third chapter, and beginning with verse 7. Please turn in your Bibles to that scripture. I thank Mr. Davey and the elders and each of you who had a part in bringing me here, paying my expenses and my my expenditures and giving me remuneration. I am most grateful and most thankful to be here again. Regularly, I, I pray for the church, for the seminary, for the deacons, for the elders, for the staff, and for each of you who has a part in the many, many programs that you have here at Colonial. And also for Stephen, for his wife, Marcia, for his boys, Seth and Ben, and his daughters, Candace and Charity and for each of you. When I was in a doctor's office this spring, I noticed a plaque on the wall which read, we do not give advice, we offer solutions. And I thought, what a wonderful motto and logo for every church of which Christ is the head. The Church of Philadelphia offered solutions to the sinners and saints in the first century. If we were to give a title to this message, we might call it, The Church of the Open Door, or the conquering church. I would like to read from the third chapter in verse 7 as you follow along. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door that no man can shut, for thou hast a little strength has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. If it were my privilege to go back across the years, the ages, and attend any particular church that is mentioned here in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation, I would like to attend the Church of Philadelphia. Furthermore, if it were my privilege to attend any particular service, I would like to attend the service in which this letter of commendation was read to the church. I would like to have been present at that service because it was one of unsurpassed joy. 
how their hearts must have glowed, how their faces must have lit up as these words of commendation were read. As in the church, in the letter to the church of Smyrna, there were no words of condemnation, but only words of praise, praise, and more praise. On 6th and Hope Streets in downtown Los Angeles stood the Church of the Open Door, where the gospel of Christ was preached for decades. The Lord used many avenues in that church through which to present the gospel. He even used the church chimes. A missionary served the Lord for many years out in the country of Africa, who was lured to the church service by the sound of the church chimes as they rang through the streets of Los Angeles. He was sitting in Pershing Square, which is a couple blocks away from the church, and he followed the sound through the narrow streets, came to the church, passed through the doors, heard the gospel message, surrendered to Christ, took a course from the Bible Institute, and went out and became a missionary for many years in the land of Africa. Not unlike the church of the open door is the church of Philadelphia. She had many opportunities presented to her. If we were to give, as I said, a title to this church, we would call it the church of the open door. But in these six or seven verses here, you have a theme. And the theme is simply this. Christ is saying, I will show to the world through you who I am. I will show to this unbelieving world through the Christians in this church who I am. There are four specifics that I would like to mention in this text. First of all, we behold the open door and the Lord who opens that door. Secondly, the pathway through the door. Thirdly, the perfections of the Christ of the open door. And lastly, the promises of the Christ of the open door. We note, first of all, the open door is as found in verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut that door. Behold, I have set before you an open door. This is at the very heart of the message. It is the work of Christ to open doors. He is constantly opening doors, and this he does for every one of us. Reverend John Fletcher of England was one of the greatest preachers who ever preached the gospel. Before his conversion, he had joined the army, and he was scheduled to sail on a ship for South America on the morning that he was scheduled to sail. Someone accidentally spilled a kettle of hot water on him, scalding him so severely that he could not go. He was very disappointed. But the ship on which John Fletcher was scheduled to sail went out to sea and was never heard from again. Jesus Christ closed one door and opened another for John Fletcher. F.W. Robertson, the great preacher of Brighton, England, had his life's work decided by the barking of a dog. His neighbor, whose daughter was seriously ill, was disturbed by this barking dog. And this brought F.W. Robertson and his neighbor together. This acquaintance kept him from joining the dragoons and going to the land of India and giving his life in military service. It preserved for him the gospel ministry and the pulpit. And his influence goes on for time and for eternity. Jesus Christ closed one door 
and open another for F.W. Robertson. Christopher Columbus nearly lost his life in early manhood. He was six miles, he was at sea, six miles from shore, but with the help of a boat's oar, swam to the beach. Did the preservation of Columbus have anything to do with the discovery of America? It most certainly did. God in his providence saved the life of Christopher Columbus. A boy was lost by his drunken father on the streets of New York. He could not find home for years. Nearly grown, he came into the Fulton Street prayer meeting in South Manhattan in New York City. They had a great revival in 1857-58 called the Fulton Street Prayer Meeting Revival. We haven't had a revival like that in America for over 125 years. We've had others like the Great Awakening, the Great Revival, the Confederate Army Revival, when it is said that 150,000 Confederate troops turned to Christ. But this was called the Fulton Street Prayer Meeting Revival, sometimes known as the, as the Million Souls Movement because it swept from one city to another across America. But this lad came into this meeting and he asked that the Christians would please pray that he could find his lost parents. Sitting in that auditorium was his mother who arose and recognized her lost son. Do you think these things just happen? Do you think they just come about by chance? Do you think these are happenstance? Do you think this is sheer luck? I tell you it is an instance of the finger of God. I have set before you an open door and no man can shut that door. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Christ is constantly opening and closing doors for his children. He does not compel us to enter. Cattle can be driven and herded, but not human hearts. It is the work of Christ to open doors. It is ours to enter. And angels will stand at the door and wait and watch to see if we go through these doors. Today, golden goals can be chosen. Decisions can be made. Sometimes in the classroom in the years past, I would tell the students that opportunities never come in a circle. They do not appear again and again. They go in a straight line. Once they come, they go, and they're gone forever. How many doors are open today? to the church of Jesus Christ. Multitudes of perplexed and suffering people are gripped by a sense of despair and desperate need. But this church was a wise church because they passed through the door that Christ had opened. They beheld the open door and the Lord who opened that door. And then we note the pathway through this door. How do we get through the door that Christ opens the same way that they did? The answer to this is found in verse uh, 7. The perfections of the Christ of the open door. 
Jesus, in his introductory statement to this church, makes four distinct assertions about himself. Notice verse 7. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. The first assertion is this, that he is holy in character. He is without blemish. He is without spot. He is without the stain of sin. Who of us in this auditorium could stand to our feet or in a prayer meeting and say, look at my life, look at my character, look at the way that I have lived. He makes the same assertion here that he makes in the Gospels. Which of you convinces me of sin? He affirms the statement of Pilate. I find no fault in him. He is without blemish and without spot. He is absolutely holy in character. But not only is he holy in character, he is true in conduct. These things says he that is holy and he that is true. If he is perfect in what he is, he is also perfect in what he does. If a tree is good, then the fruit that comes from that tree is good. If a stream is pure, then the streams, the water that flows from that fountain is pure. Jesus Christ is possessed of absolute, flawless perfection. These things says he that is holy, he that is true. He is holy in character, he is true in conduct, be something else. He is a king. He has the key of David. I hope that all of you here hold to the premillennial position, unlike some of our Baptist brethren who spiritualize and allegorize the text and don't believe that Christ is coming on the face of the earth. Recently, I memorized a verse from the third chapter of the book of Amos in verse 13. And it goes something like this, if I can recall. He formed the mountains, created the wind, declares unto man his thought, makes the morning darkness and treads upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The God who created all things is going to rule upon earth and he has kingly powers. He opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers unto the ends of the earth. And the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He is holy in character. He's true in conduct. He is a king. And he has kingly powers. Captain George Spark was the company commander of Service Company 275th Infantry Regiment of the 70th Infantry Division in combat in World War II in the mountains of eastern France, those snow-swept, rugged Vosges Mountains. And one day while he was out driving his jeep in those sharp defiles, he picked up the body of a green-clad Nazi soldier and threw him on the hood of his jeep and brought him into the command station. Why did Captain Spark do that? Because he never wanted his men to forget the reason that they were there. Likewise, we must never forget who Christ is in a day when he is blasphemed, in a day when he is discounted on television and counted as a nondescript, he asserts to us that he is holy in character, that he is true in conduct, that he's never made a mistake, that he's never erred in all of eternity, and that he is a king. 
and that he is coming again with kingly powers. They beheld the open door. They went through the door that Christ had opened. They went through because they were loyal to his word. They were loyal to Christ. And because they relied upon him for strength. But there's something else here. It says that they received the promises of the Christ of the open door. Notice verses 10 and verse 12. Verse 12 Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Isn't it wonderful that that when they pass through these doors, they receive the promises of Christ. And the first promise was the promise of prominence. I will write upon him the name of my God. There was something peculiar. There was something outstanding. There was something magnificent about these Christians in Philadelphia because they bore a likeness to God. I will write upon him the name of my God. In the past years, when I would go back to my native state, the hill country of southwestern Iowa, and visit my hometown, I would now and then meet a farmer who would say to me, well, aren't you one of Jim Peterson's sons that used to live out here southeast of Harlan and run that farm? And I would say, yes, I am. And he would say something like this, I thought so, because you resemble the family. There was a family resemblance that was remarkable. And as sons of God, in our speech, in our brotherliness, in our courage, in the face of danger, and in our speech, and in our peace, in the midst of confusion, we are to declare to this world that we do not belong to this place, that we are otherworldly, that we are citizens of heaven, and we look for a city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I will write upon him the name of my God. That is a blessing of all who come through the door that Christ opens. But not only did they procure the promise of prominence, they procured the promise of his keeping power. Look what it says in verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to them that dwell upon the earth. We need the keeping power of God. We cannot keep ourselves. (laughs) We've proven that through a lifetime, haven't we? But this keeping power does not mean that we will not be subject to temptation and trials and tears and conflicts. Of course we will. If our Lord does not see fit to keep us from the fiery furnace, he will keep us in the fiery furnace. I will keep him. In the hour of temptation, they procured the promise of prominence. They procured the promise of his keeping power. But there's something else here. They received the promise of being a pillar. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. You ask, what does it mean? It means I will make you useful. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, the author of the plan of salvation, he who has created the human body, the mind and the eyes and the heart and the 2,000 parts that they speak of on television has said, I will make you useful. Christ builds his church of us and through us. 
And notice it says, I will make of him a pillar. It doesn't say, I will make of him a pillow. Some would like to have a pillow to sleep in church. Others don't need it because they sleep just as well without it. <laughs> but it's not a pillow. It's a pillar. A pillar supports. A pillar holds up. A pillar lifts. A pillar binds the church together. There are two classes of Christians in the church. Those who lift up and those who lean upon. Those who support it and those who need to be supported. And those who lift and those who drift. It's amazing here that the Bible speaks of the drifter. Some Christians are drifters. Notice what it says. And he shall no more go out. There are so many drifting saints today who listen to the voice of television, the voice of radio, the voice of the internet, the voice of bloggers, the voice of Hollywood. It reminds me of the story of Chicken Little. Chicken Little was out in the garden one day and a cabbage leaf fell on her tail. And this earth-taking event filled her with terror and she began to run through the countryside. She ran with all of her might and by and by she came to Henpen. And Henpen, seeing the despair on Chicken Little's face, asked the cause. What's happening? What's the matter? Oh, she said, the sky is falling in. The world is coming to an end. And so Henpen joined in the stampede. And then they came to Duck Luck and Goose Loose and Turkey Lurkey and Fox Locks. And they told the fox about the disaster. Oh, said the fox... I have prepared for such an emergency as this. Come with me into my air raid shelter. And so all of them followed the fox. Chicken little, hen pen, duck luck, goose loose, turkey lurkey. And needless to say, he fared sumptuously for several days thereafter. (laughs) Well, you say this is a story of unparalleled silliness. I've never heard anything like it in the church, but it's so true. People listen to the voices. Here's a voice, there's a voice, yonder is a voice. Some Christians are drifters rather than pillars. A pillar supports, a pillar holds up. One who is a pillar does not support his church on Sunday and then allow it to collapse on Monday. One who is a pillar does not support his church at the communion table and then allow it to fall to pieces in Christian giving. One who is a pillar does not support his church at the hour of power And then it allowed it to fall into ruins by some shady business deal during the week. One who is a pillar does not support his church at home. And then wreck it went away from home in a strange city. He is constant and steadfast in his loyalty. He supports, he holds up, he lifts, he binds the church together. But not only is a pillar supportive, a pillar is ornamental. It is a thing of beauty. It has aesthetic qualities. And evidently these Philadelphia Christians knew something about Grecian architecture. They had looked upon Corinth and Doric columns and had been spelled by their beauty. But there is nothing so charming as the beauty of holiness. There is nothing so winsome as downright goodness. And these Christians in Philadelphia were possessed of holiness... They were separated unto God. And they were possessed of downright goodness. A few moments ago, I indicated to you that there was a theme in this passage. 
Christ is saying, I will show to the world through you who I am. And that's exactly what happens in verse 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they're Jews and are not. But do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. This passage says that the Lord converted some of Satan's followers. How did this miracle take place? Through the beauty of the lives of the Christians of the Philadelphia church. They beheld their courage, their Christ-likeness, their steadfastness. How can we win our foes to Christ? How can we make an impression upon society for our Lord? How can we leave a mark before our eyes are closed in death? The same way they did. It is so easy to become a Christian. It is so simple to live the Christian life for a lifetime. Don't complicate it. Some do. It is so uncomplicated. Look what they did. They beheld the open door and Christ who opened that door. They walked through that door. They were loyal to the scriptures. They were loyal to Christ. And they relied upon him for strength. And they recognized the perfections of the Christ of the open door. That he is holy in character. That he is true in conduct. That he is a king. And that he has kingly powers. And he's coming to rule and to reign upon the earth. To supplant the Gentile nations. Who have wreaked their havoc upon the earth for centuries. May he come soon. To right the wrongs. To help the women and the children that we read about every day. And learn about on television. We need to praise John who prays even some. Come. Lord Jesus. And having gone through the door. They received the promise of prominence, the promise of his keeping power, and the promise of being a pillar, supportive, uplifting, helpful, a blessing. Timothy Dwight was the president of Yale University 200 years ago. During his tenure of office, he often spoke in chapel, and it is said that one half the students of Yale University turned to Christ. But not only was he a theologian, he was a hymn writer. And he wrote these words, which I leave with, with you today. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand. Dear's the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. For her my cares and toils be given. Till toils and cares shall end. May that be our prayer and our desire today. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the world's only Savior and man's best friend. And for his sake, and for his sake alone. Amen. Amen. 